The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery. Our knowledge is up close and personal. Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts in our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information presented is not intended to be a substitute or relied upon as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any health-related questions you may have. As always, if you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. The Lifeline is available 24 hours a day. Welcome to Episode 17, The Impact of the Pandemic on Mental Health in America. Part 1, How is it affecting our youth? Before we begin our program, we should admit that Valerie and I have had some harrowing personal responses to the pandemic. For me, the abrupt ending of all my activities, social life, work, relationships, were replaced by isolation and then despair and the return of uncontrollable symptoms. I literally feared for my recovery. The pandemic took me by the lapels and slammed me up against a wall. Wow, Helen, you you just descriptively illustrated the feelings that hit me too at the beginning of the pandemic. And you have a beautiful way with words. Oh, thanks. You do. And, you know, my own mental health was extremely negatively affected by the pandemic. And in our next episode, When we talk about adult mental health and how it was impacted by the pandemic, you and I are going to share our own experiences. But we were drawn to this topic, the pandemic's toll on youth and young adults, because, Helen, you know, you and I have young people in our lives whose own lives were turned upside down by the pandemic, by the pandemic's toll on their mental health. Uh, Yeah, it's it's sad, but true that the past two years have been hard on all of us. Depression and anxiety have more than doubled in America, and some say quadrupled. Individuals with no prior experience of a mental health condition are now in the grip of one, are trying to be caretaker to a loved one, or both. The impact on people who are already battling mental illness has been extremely hard-hitting and dangerous. 
The crisis is so widespread that the stigma of identifying and discussing mental health difficulties has decreased as dramatically as the illnesses have increased. Although driven by desperation, this new openness may be one of the positive things to come out of the situation. Perhaps the most debilitating condition of our mental health crisis is that we were already in one before the pandemic began. Valerie, what can you tell us about this? Yes, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, we were already in a youth mental health crisis. Mental health challenges were already the leading cause of disability and poor life outcomes in young people. And the statistics show that up to one in five children between the ages of three and 17 in the U.S. were reporting a mental, emotional, developmental, or behavioral disorder. And in 2016, that was before the pandemic, in 2016, that was 7.7 million children. And those statistics, yeah, 7.7 million children. And those statistics and the following ones are from the U.S. Surgeon General's advisory that was titled Protecting Youth Mental Health. And those national surveys of youth have shown major increases in certain mental health symptoms, including depressive symptoms and suicidal ideation. And here are just a few statistics that illustrate those major increases. In just one decade, from 2009 to 2019, the proportion of high school students reporting persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased by 40%. Youth psychiatric visits to emergency departments for depression, anxiety, and behavioral challenges increased by 28%. And this one is really startling. Suicide rates among youth ages 10 to 24 increased by 57%. And all of that was true even before the pandemic dramatically altered young people's experiences at home, at school, and in their communities. Well, Valerie, if that's where we were before the pandemic, what's changed over the past two years, I'm afraid to ask. Well, since the pandemic began, here's what has happened. The pandemic basically caused a crisis on top of a crisis. In 2020 through 2021, rates of psychological distress among young people, including symptoms of anxiety, depression, and other mental health disorders, has, as I just illustrated, increased dramatically. And recent research found that depressive and anxiety symptoms doubled during the pandemic, as you mentioned, Helen with 25% of youth experiencing depressive symptoms and 20% experiencing anxiety symptoms. In early 2021, emergency department visits in the United States where suspected suicide attempts were 51% higher for adolescent girls compared to the same time period a year earlier. And early estimates from the National Center for Health Statistics suggest there were tragically, tragically, more than 6,600 deaths by suicide among 10 to 24-year-old, the 10 to 24-year-old age group in 2020. That's an overwhelmingly sad statistic. Yeah, this is all pretty tragic. Um, I think it was the gravity and the, the universality of American mental health issues that led us to this episode on youth. Now, we can't cover everything, and we don't want to bury you in statistics but they can serve as a kind of shorthand to the situation. So here are our objectives. Number one, 
to investigate the impact of the pandemic on the mental health of American youth, children, adolescents, and young adults. Two, to determine what institutional, educational, community, and medical support is available. Three, to provide advice for youth, families, and caretakers. And four, to define future trends and treatment options that will address and support the needs of these vulnerable populations. To help us achieve these objectives, we are honored to have two excellent guests joining us today, Dr. Melissa Eshelman and Lieutenant Wayne Sneed. I'll start by introducing Dr. Eshelman. Melissa Eshelman, MD, is the Associate Director for Psychiatric Services at the University of Texas at Austin Counseling and Mental Health Center, where she oversees psychiatric services for both undergraduate and graduate students. Dr. Eshelman earned her medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. She completed psychiatry residence training and child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship training at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center and her forensic psychiatry fellowship training at the USC Institute for Psychiatry and the Law in Los Angeles. Dr. Eshelman is board certified in psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. She was named a distinguished fellow by the American Psychiatric Association in 2015. Dr. Eshelman is also an associate professor for the UT Austin Dell Medical School Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Dr. Eshelman is a native Texan and Latina, the daughter of parents who immigrated from Peru. Her professional interests include college mental health, transitional aged youth, and improving mental health access to patients of diverse backgrounds. Welcome, Dr. Eshelman. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. Appreciate being here. Well, we are delighted to have you, and it's my unique pleasure. To, uh, to tell you some, something about our, our other distinguished guest, who is Police Lieutenant Wayne Sneed. Now, Wayne has served as Chief of Internal Affairs Section for the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General from April 2004 through November 2008. He began his law enforcement career as a police officer for the San Marcos Police Department in December of 1982. During his service with San Marcos Police Department, he served and created many positions, including a secondary level supervisor. He has also served as a certified instructor with both the National White Collar Crime Center and National Insurance Crime Bureau. He possesses a training instructor certification, school-based law enforcement officer certification, and mental health officer certification from the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement and Critical Incident Stress Management Certification. He has also obtained certification in Critical Incident Stress Management from the International Critical Incident Stress Management Institute. Wayne received his Bachelor of Criminal Justice and Business Management degrees from Texas State University. He is a certified Inspector General with the National Association of Inspector Generals. He has also earned the Certified Public manager designation from the William P. Hobby Center for Public Service at Texas State University, Round Rock. He has over 38 years of service with both criminal justice and law enforcement agencies. Wayne was appointed Governor Greg by Governor Greg Abbott as an advisory board member of the Texas Juvenile Justice Advisory Board. 
So uh, welcome, Lieutenant Sneed and uh, Dr. Esselman. We are delighted to have you and, and honored to have you with us today. You both understand the urgency and the magnitude of these challenges for our youth. So we're eager to be underway. And Valerie has the first question. I do. And to start our discussion, we'd like to look at what is what is causing this new mental health epidemic in our youth. And as a little background to kick it off, scientists have proposed various hypotheses to explain this new mental health epidemic in our youth. Some believe that the increases in reported mental health challenges are partly due to young people becoming more willing to openly discuss mental health concerns, as Helen mentioned earlier. And other researchers point to such things as the growing use of digital media and limited access to mental health care, which we all know is a big issue. Dr. Eshelman and Lieutenant Sneed, we'd like to open this up to your expertise. And we'll start with you, Dr. Eshelman. What do you think are some of the causes of this new mental health epidemic in our youth? Well, as you both eloquently pointed out, um, the rates of childhood mental health concerns and and, uh, suicidal ideation actually had already been steadily increasing. And in part, I do think that a lot of of, of prior to the pandemic, I think a lot of that had to do, um, as with what you pointed out, some youth are now able to speak more about it. But there is uh, more stress um, with social media. Um, uh, Youth are posting uh, typically about positive stuff that's going on in their life. So if, if there's an individual uh, uh, who is experiencing more depression or anxiety, all they're seeing is uh, what looks like everybody else is doing well and doing wonderfully. And in comparison, they're struggling. Um, and so I think that causes a lot of pressure. In addition, I also think um, with technology, although fantastic over the years, a lot of our youth um, have difficulties with um, delayed gratification. Uh, so they're so used to getting an answer right away. They're so used to posting and, and it's up immediately. Um, so it's really hard on them when something doesn't occur right away. And so that also adds uh, to a lot of distress uh, and a lot of disappointment. And then I think uh, with when you add the pandemic, oh my gosh, the pandemic, as both of you talked about, how much it increased uh, loneliness, it really disrupted for our youth their ability to attend school, which is a huge social uh, aspect for them to have contact with their friends or have contact um, uh, with their peers and their teachers. Um, and instead, they were all home quarantined. And so that added to social isolation. Many parents had to work. Uh, so uh, they weren't uh, there with their kids. Or if they worked from home, they had to do their job, too. So they're trying to struggle. Um, these parents are trying to struggle. Guardians trying to struggle with helping student, um, their young child um, or older child with how do you navigate the, the uh, setting up Zoom meetings? And how do you navigate all these difficulties, which just added to the stress and social opportunities dropped. Um, so there wasn't an opportunity to meet up with their peers, which really helps your emotional health is when you're having opportunity to spend time um, um, outside of your family life. And the pandemic also disrupted access to healthcare, right? For there was a period of time we couldn't go in to see our doctors. Um, and then even though it's fantastic that telehealth came up, there's a lot of people who may not have access to a computer. Um, and so that, and, and I think the thing that 
uh, it really had a negative effect on those who already had vulnerabilities to begin with, our youth who have disabilities or have racial or ethnic minorities or those from low incomes were definitely negatively impacted. Um, so I had wanted to add that piece in terms of how much the, the pandemic really affected our youth. Thank you. Wow, that's a, a lot to think about and definitely is backed up by the research we did. And um, Lieutenant Snade, what, what do you think has helped cause this new epidemic in mental health with our youth? Well, I think Dr. Eschman uh, pretty much hit on all of the high points. Uh, the one aspect that I would say that uh, some parents weren't able to go to work, uh, especially at the height of the pandemic. So then you had economical impacts uh, to those families and to those households, access to food, access to uh, medications. Um, and then, as she said, the social emotional piece of interaction with their peers, with their friends. Uh, we noticed that uh, when school came back in, that a lot of our kids um, had missed a year and a half of school. And Therefore, they didn't have a lot of the social emotional skills and interpersonal skills that was needed at the level that they were at. For example, our fourth graders came back as sixth graders, right? Our eighth graders came back as sophomores in high school. Um, and so they missed out almost on two years of interactions and just learning those social rules, for lack of a better word. So we had a lot of, uh, disruptive behavior in, in schools, uh, inability to regulate a lot of their emotions. Um, and uh, it just led to a multitude of different types of things. But uh, I think Dr. Eschman, um kind of summarized uh, the big impact, uh, I would call it, on, on, the, on how it impacted young adults. I, I will say that uh, when I testified before the legislature in 2019, on mental health and suicide in schools, uh, we had gone two years, uh, 2018, 2019, and 2000 uh, was zero completed suicides, which had always been our goal uh, here. Um, we Our belief was one child's life is way too many. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have seen a stark increase, uh, similar to the numbers that we saw at the highest level. Um, you know, through this uh, through this school year, so uh, it is it is uh, obvious that the impact is monumental on our youth uh, in their ability to deal with the things that are going on in their lives. Okay, well, this is uh, something that I you know for me uh, as an adult, I keep thinking these conditions would be so impossible for me to to navigate. And I just think of trying to be it, do it as a young person and and also to imagine what is it like for a little child? So next, we would like to look at the specific challenges by sector, children, adolescents and young adults. Dr. Sharon Hoover of the National Center for School Mental Health said nearly every child in the country is suffering to some degree from the psychological effects of the pandemic. Now, there was a mother on Sunday today with a very troubled uh, 11-year-old daughter who put it very well. She said, the pandemic took away the spirit of being young, which is a sad thing to lose. And I, you know, she used that term, the pandemic took it away. And there are so many young people, I'm sure you've heard them, who say that they feel robbed by the pandemic. 
that it's taken so much from them. So first, we're going to look at children ages 5 to 12. And the situation is alarming in the very young. The Huffington Post reports that in children, there is a 24% rise in emergency department visits. 8% of children 9 to 10 have thoughts of suicide. And the condition of at-risk children is worsening. Children of color are two and a half times more likely to have lost a parent or caretaker to COVID. The suicide rate for black children 5 to 12 is nearly twice as high as that of white kids. And we're going to have more information on this in the adolescent sector. So I wanted to start, um, uh, Lieutenant Seed, you have worked so closely with the schools. Um, what impact is this having on the very young children who are really incapable of understanding what's happening? Well, we've, uh, as you pointed out through your statistics, we've seen uh, a substantial increase in calls for service for our young, uh, I, I call them uh, elementary age kids. Um, we take it uh, obviously very seriously. Uh, as I've mentioned before and testified before, you know, the youngest student we've lost is a nine-year-old. Um, there was a point in time when I would have believed that uh, an elementary school age kid was not capable of completing suicide. Um, but that theory obviously was taken away um, during that time. But we have heard some of the same things from some of our students that they feel like the, the pandemic did take away uh, a large portion of their of their lives, even from a child's perspective. Um, that was stolen from them. I was wondering, have you run into this with children where, you know, a lot of times, you know, kids blame the bad things on themselves. And I read of one girl whose dad had died of COVID and she, she, she thought it was her fault and got, you know, in a very bad way because she, she said, well, if I had been with him, he would have been all right, you know? And I just was wondering if th this seems like this would be something that would be really hard on, on children as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, I believe that parents always have the best intentions uh, for their kids. However, uh, I believe that some of the conversations and some of the experiences that they experience as adults and they share with the young kids, those young, those young kids take that to heart. Uh, and they take right. responsibility yeah. many times for those things, whether it be a loss of a job, a loss of income, and they carry that. And we've had students that have made outcries because, but they did not want to bother quote, or burden their parents uh, with this because financially they couldn't afford to, to uh, take on any uh, expenses for mental health services. So that kid does not want to say anything because in fear that they're going to create more of a burden for their, for their family and for their household. Gosh, that's sad. Thank you for all of the insight you just shared with the ch young children. And let's move on to adolescence. Let's look at the challenges facing adolescents. We know that most mental health disorders begin during youth, between the ages of 12 and 24, although they are most often first detected later in life. We also know that poor mental health is strongly related to other health and developmental concerns in young people. Yeah, uh, and I had said I would bring up this some more about, about the at-risk youth. 
because it's the statistics and that are underreported and underresearched. So what we're learning is distressing and great cause for alarm. American Indian adolescent girls are three times more likely to die of suicide. LGBTQ teenagers, 73% have anxiety and depression and 48% serious thoughts of suicide. And, and this is a number that has risen dramatically. Among Black female high school girls, the Center for Disease Control reports that 15% have attempted suicide. So these statistics definitely illustrate what we've been talking about. And we've given a lot of statistics, but we really think they do illustrate what we're talking about. And Lieutenant Snead, what do you think are some of the key challenges facing adolescents, both before and because of exacerbated by the pandemic? Well, uh, I'd have to agree with some of the uh, information that's been shared here amongst this group. Um, We have seen a stark increase in our students uh, with gender or sexual orientation identification. Um, It seems to be uh, more prevalent than it was before pandemic. We did see it quite a bit before the pandemic, but it has increased, uh, it appears, uh, post-pandemic, or I wouldn't say post. I guess we're still in the pandemic. It's just not as as uh, severe as it, as it once was. So uh, we, we've definitely seen an increase. You know, one of the things I read about challenges addressing mental health needs was really interesting. Um, Dr. Vikram Patel, who does a lot of research in the area of adolescent mental health, said that one of the challenges that is is that there's a fairly low capacity and motivation of non-specialist healthcare workers to provide quality mental health services to young people. And I was just wondering if either one of you wanted to comment on that, because I thought that was a really startling um, uh, thought coming from someone who does a lot of research in the area of adolescent mental health. I can go ahead and just speak to um, access to child psychiatrists. Um, Here in the state of Texas, we don't have enough child psychiatrists. So many of, if a a child or adolescent uh, needs uh, mental health treatment, especially in the form of medication, they're generally seeing their family medicine doctor um, or a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. And so they're not um, getting that specialized care uh, that child psychiatrists um, provide. And so that that is a major issue. Uh, If there are child psychiatrists available, um, their first appointment may not be for three to four months out, um, which when a child is having a mental health crisis or issue, they really need uh, help now or very soon, not in three to four months. So I think that that um, uh, at least the availability of child psychiatrists uh, illustrates that point. Right. There are 254 counties in Texas and over 200 of them don't have a psychiatrist of, of any type, child psychiatrist, psychiatrist, adult psychiatrist, more than 200 counties without a single psychiatrist. It's really alarming. It is alarming. And there's many general psychiatrists who might see um, adolescents, but then they they choose to not see under 12 or under 14. So that leaves those children um, with limited resources. Right, really vulnerable.
Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, I've uh, gained a lot more knowledge already about adolescence, and um, there's another sector we wanted to look at, and that's the area of young adults, the challenges to young adults. And the mental health statistics we've given so far are unfortunately mirrored in the young adult population, the same uh, increase in symptoms and reporting and um, the the suicidal ideation statistics and attempt, uh, it, it's the same in this sector, but there is one statistic that is specific to young adults that comes from the Journal of American Medical Association that is startling and bears mentioning, and that is that alcohol-related deaths in young adults rose 40% in one year from 2019 to 2020. And I think this really brings home the impact the pandemic has had on the mental health of young adults. And Dr. Eshelman, what challenges do you think the pandemic has exacerbated for young adults? The isolation has really contributed to increased rates of depression, uh, as well as increased rates of anxiety in our youth. And those, what I just mentioned, are the top reasons that um, uh, college students at the university I work at will access or look for treatment is because of those. Um, and e- even within our last year, uh, social isolation and loneliness was named as uh, top issues for college students. Now, remember, this is an age w- uh, where uh, a lot of the uh, mental illnesses will uh, emerge. And so a uh, first time that uh, someone might have a, a manic episode of that bipolar disorder, uh, even though they may have had uh, symptoms of depression and anxiety for a while, or it could be the first time that they're having eating disorders. But as a result of the pandemic, everyone was under quarantine. So many uh, uh, of the these young uh, 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 young adults were not saying anything to their family, worried about the burden that they could create. Uh, and then uh, these symptoms continued. Many of them turned to alcohol or drugs uh, in a way of self-medicating. Um, and so that's why you're seeing the increase in the alcohol-related deaths because they're either drinking too much or uh, driving while uh, under the influence of alcohol. Uh, and then many of them have uh, also um, developed a addiction to uh, different substances. Um, so it's this has just uh, been... Uh, very difficult. I think a lot of our college-age students are talking about low motivation, how hard it is for them to get going and to be excited about things. Um, there's some grief. Uh, so many, uh, and I'm thinking about the high school students who graduated, uh, didn't have a graduation, right? Uh, and here they started at, uh, many of them started at college, but didn't have that peer group support. So now they're starting this year, finally getting to meet their peers, especially if they they come from a town far away um, from the city where their uh, university is located. So that's a huge transition and much more difficult than it had been had we not had the pandemic. Um, 
and then academics. I think all of this really affected their ability to learn, especially with the online learning. Um, uh, I think many individuals uh, do better when they're uh, in in-person learning um, because the, you just have better attention. Uh, and I, there are some youth who do great in front of a computer, but um, a lot of people, they can't just do that um, all day. I can also attest to that. It's hard It's hard to be sitting in front of a laptop all day long. And so I think that's negatively impacted um, our young adults and those that are college-aged. You mentioned the loneliness and um, lack of social support. Helen and I, you know, I mentioned earlier that we have young people in our lives whose mental health was affected. And we both know people, young adults who went off to college their first year and were basically in their dorms alone with their computer and told, stay in your dorm with your computer and do your classes. And they, several, uh, I think Helen and I counted seven people that we know going off to school who either didn't make it through the first semester or if they did, didn't go back for their second year and laid out for a while, just really had their lives disrupted. And it, it was hard to watch these uh, youngsters struggling like that. Right. The loneliness really impacted their ability to perform academically to their best potential. And so that that leads to them not necessarily staying in school or, as you said, taking a pause from school. Right. Both of you have really helped sort of, I think, define the damage and the impact that this has had on our youth. But I think it'd be great to try to investigate so what can be done about it? And both of you have already sort of mentioned the, the you know, some of the things that are shortcomings. But I'm, I'm curious, um, what support is available in our society? I mean, you know, the schools, the medical and psychiatric fields, law enforcement, community. Um, I've, I've wanted to give one example of what the pandemic is bringing to bear on institutions. Um, And this is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, which we've talked about a lot. Now, it is an organization that is national in scope, but it's a not-for-profit. And so they have limited limited funds, right? And NAMI has had a 200% increase in calls asking for help since the pandemic began. And this, to me, is just an example of the increased work and support the pandemics demanded from our institutions. Um, Dr. Thomas Insull, who's the former head of the National Institute of Mental Health, put it this way. The problem is not scientific. The problem is not in the science. It's in the lack of a social safety net. So, Lieutenant Sneed, you represent law enforcement and you have worked very closely with the schools. Um, In our current conditions, which Institutions and and communities are offering support for these kids. What's out there? Sorry. Uh, Yes. So uh, some of the things I would applaud uh, Austin ISD uh, School District for is uh, implementation of uh, on-campus therapeutic clinics, right? Um, It it serves many purposes. Uh, The main purpose being it has the ability that a child does not have to leave school to receive services. Uh, A parent doesn't have to leave work to receive services. So in addition to these on-campus therapy clinics, uh, one of the other uh, resources that we've utilized is our mental health authority. And in Travis County, that's integral care. Uh, We work very closely uh, with them. They have been a very 
the lifeline uh, for Austin ISD uh, in providing uh, on-campus assessments, uh, follow-ups with our family and our students in their homes, um, and just uh, uh, been a mountain of support. They've they've got a section on uh, first, uh, first episode psychosis. Uh, that have been very beneficial to us uh, in the campus, as uh, Dr. Eshelman pointed out. You know, a lot of times this happens their freshman year in college, but we've seen some early onsets, you know, uh, amongst our students. And so having that resource there is good. We've also built a very strong relationship with our our mental health uh, private hospitals in the area and uh, we had a situation just recently where one of our students, uh, high performance students, uh, right before graduation experienced a very um, sudden uh, mental health and uh, psychosis uh, episode uh, that resulted in arrest. And so what we've done or had done before as we worked with uh, Judge Temple over Gardner Betts in the juvenile uh, justice system and trying to help uh, get our students help rather than uh, than jail time. Uh, we've worked with the misdemeanor uh, uh, division of mental health in the Travis County DA's office uh, and the felony uh, courts uh, in the uh, Travis County DA's office uh, to help kind of support the students rather than make it uh, a punitive deal where they're doing it, it's to get them and to funnel them and to help. As we know, our jails, our county jails and our prisons are full of individuals who had diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness uh, but did not receive the treatment that they needed. My nephew is one of them uh, and ended up with 40 years in prison uh, and if he would have had the support that he needed mm. beforehand, I think this just could have been avoided. Uh, so uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Ish. I can uh, speak to um, a university. At our university, we have worked on uh, increasing access um, to college students. So some of the things... Um, that we started even before the pandemic was telehealth visits, which of course, once the pandemic start, started and quarantine occurred, that uh, that was our only uh, way that we had uh, uh, actual visits with students. Um, we also have expanded and have counselors that are embedded within the different colleges because we realize many students aren't going to walk over to a building on the other side of campus, but they will go downstairs within their same college building and meet with a counselor. So they're called care counselors and they're in different, uh, the different colleges. Um, we also have diversity uh, counseling uh, outreach specialists who are available to students who have different identities. So these are counselors who identify as Black or Latinx um, or uh, they represent international students um, and other identities. So um, a student who uh, might want to work with a Black identified counselor has access to one. Um, uh, and That's they- remarkable. Well, that's just wonderful. It is wonderful because many uh, many students uh, have difficulties, and and it's 
helpful when you can connect to someone who has your similar background and kind of knows what you've gone through. First generation students, for example, um, it's really different for them versus if your uh, family, you've got a, a bunch of people who went to college. Um, we also have... Uh, uh, have connected them with, we have a, a service called My SSP that offers free counseling by an app, um, because we know so many of our, our, uh, our youth, um, are really use their phones. And so that this way they can connect either, um, with someone either by their laptop or using an app on their phone. Um, and it's a 24 seven, uh, option that students have available. And then the last thing I want to mention has to do with law enforcement. Um, we have individuals uh, who sometimes are in crisis. It could be a student who's having a psychotic break or someone who's suicidal um, or someone under the influence of drugs. And in the past, all we had is our university police to respond. And as you can imagine, that can be really distressing. Police show up at your dorm room um, and that is distressing. And then obviously some individuals have had negative experiences with police, perhaps uh, feeling targeted because of their identity. Um, and one thing that our university has done is we actually have what we call uh, mental health, uh, MHART, mental health access and referral um, uh, counselors who can co-respond with officers when there is a mental health crisis. So the, fir- the person that is uh, talking to the student is the counselor uh, and not necessarily the police officer is co-responding and they're in the background just in case they're needed, but then they're having uh, an opportunity to, do, to discuss things with a counselor. And so in this way, we're helping to provide that support when someone's in a mental health crisis on campus. Um, so those are some of the things uh, that uh, universities can do to, to respond um, to the mental health needs of, of our students. Well, both of you have uh, described very forward-looking, innovative ways of dealing with these situations, and it sounds terrific. Um, I wanted to discuss for a moment or stop and look at, I guess I would call it support at the private level, and that's what to tell those who are caring for a troubled youth. Um, The Children's Hospital of Chicago has this great report about the concerns of parents and caretakers and it's very, uh, it's very severe. Seventy um, percent or more reported that the pandemic is the worst thing to happen to their child. The pandemic has taken a toll on their child's mental health. They're fearful that the pandemic has impacted their kids' social, academic, and emotional development. They're concerned about their child's cognition and physical development. And sixty-five percent felt their children could have benefited from seeing a counselor or other mental health professional throughout the pandemic. So kind of breaking this question into two parts. The first is, um, what advice do you have for those supporting a troubled youth today? These adults are lost and fearful, many of them. And first off, what symptoms and behaviors should they look for in their children that are warning signs for mental health issues? Dr. Eshelman, what um, what do you tell people? Um, I think uh, in terms of looking for warning signs, um, some things uh, for and if we're talking about parents and family members, um, changes in behavior, um, isolation, suddenly mm-hmm. not wanting to interact 
spending a lot of time in your room, uh, maybe increase um, reckless behaviors, um, uh, maybe hanging out with a crowd and you're like, I don't even know these other kids. Um, so behaviors that are different and, and changing. Um, uh, looking depressed or uh, perhaps not eating, losing weight, not sleeping. Um, they seem to be up gaming all the time. Um, so being alert uh, to all those behaviors, I think, is really important. Um, the other thing I think is in, uh, in terms of advice for um, parents and guardians it is to um, start creating an environment where you're, you not only talk about what's going well in your child's life, but, but making sure that they know they can always talk to you about what's not going well. Uh, I think so many times kids don't want to disappoint their parents, so they want to only report the positives and don't report any of the negatives. And I think it's also helpful if parents can talk about times when they struggle or talk talk about times if they right. have mental health yeah. issues. I think sometimes that is really helpful um, because kids, if you keep it from them, they don't know. And then they figure, okay, well, this is just something wrong with me. Um, so you can create an environment where you can talk about it and invite your child to let you know if things are not going well. And, or even invite that and give them permission and say, sometimes it is really hard to talk to your own parent because it is hard to talk it to your is, own parent. Yeah. And it may be easier to talk to an adult sibling or to an aunt or uncle or to your grandparents. And But for parents to let the child know, if you're ever in trouble or feel you're distressed and it feels too hard to talk to myself or your other parent, you it's okay to go talk to another adult too, um, just to let them know it's okay to get that support from someone else. Um, I think uh, it's also helpful to look for signs of bullying, which uh, certainly um, can occur at any point. And I think it's very silent. People, uh, most of the youth don't talk about that. Uh, and then maybe even parents asking, have you witnessed bullying? Uh, because lots of times they have. And then that may be an opportunity for them to share if that's actually occurring to them as well. Um, and I think the very last thing I want to say is emphasizing how problems are solvable. I think so many times for youth, a problem feels awful and they feel like there's no escape and there's nothing they can do to fix it. And so everything's awful and they can't think of a solution. Um, and helping um, individuals, youth know that uh, sometimes problems are awful. Sometimes they're bad. It feels like there's no way out, but they are solvable. And I can be there to help you with it. It's kind of like thinking of, uh, about a, um, a plan for a mental health emergency. I think we're really good at, at teaching our kids about 911, um, what to do if there's a, a medical emergency, but not necessarily a mental health emergency. So right. helping helping them realize that, yeah, it, it, they may not want to tell you they're having suicidal thoughts, but they can tell you that they're in distress or not doing well. And then you can assist them with how you can take their symptoms seriously. Don't go, oh, it's just a phase they're going through. That's what a lot of parents do. Yeah. Um, they're just stressed because they're in college. Well, no, I think if your child is telling you they're in distress, you need to listen and pay attention and go, honey, what do you think you need? Yeah, I came across a quote where someone said, if your child tells you um, what he's feeling, believe him, you know, and, 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 and validate it, you know. Yeah, validate it and, and say, I'm here to help you. Um, if they say, I think I want to see a counselor, um, don't immediately dismiss it and say, oh, well, you just need to go work out more or eat healthier. Those are things that can be helpful, sure, uh, but they might need um, services from a mental health professional. Okay. Now, um, Lieutenant Sneed, I know that you were earlier talking about, and it, it, I'm wondering if this is different 
with how it's different with younger kids, because you were talking about how a lot of times they want to protect their parents from that. The parents can't afford to get them treatment. So they don't want to tell them about their problems or whatever. Are you seeing a lot of this? Uh, yes, yes, we, we are. Obviously, the pandemic has created an increase across the spectrum of uh, ages of our students uh, and young adults. Um, but one of the things that uh, Dr. Ushman hit on a lot of big points uh, of, to be aware of, or warning signs, you may want to call them, um, I think that one of the things that parents can do to really enhance the opportunity for their child to come forth, as she said, is, you know, to embrace that that outcry um, and just let them know the support. It, it does several things. Number one, I think it breaks the stigma about talking about mental health, right, which is, I think, is something our nation as a whole could benefit from. Uh, number two is we've seen situations where we're looking at, uh, from a school perspective, we may be looking at increased absences, uh, changes in grades, you know, drastic changes in grades, um, uh, skipping school, you know, things like that. They're hanging out with a different group of kids than they were hanging out with before. Some of the same things that, that she's talked about, but just in a school setting and how it would be impactful from a school perspective. So that's some of the areas that we, we truly focus on. But yes, we have, we have seen a definite increase across the board across all ages um, with, uh, with outcries. But, uh, and one of the key parts is, as she pointed out, you know, if you can't talk to your parents, which many kids don't, right. uh, they talk to other kids, um, you know, and that's how we learn about kids in distress is they, that their peers will come forth and say, I'm concerned about so-and-so. Um, and to really bring, uh, bring that to the forefront of attention uh, our counselors in our school, which is a resource that I failed to mention earlier, our counselors in our school and our licensed mental health professionals within Austin ISD do a fabulous job of doing a what we call triaging, uh, pre-level assessment, and then determining what resources would be best. And then helping not just give the parent the information, but having them access it. Because we, we have found that parents, if we give information to parents, Many times they become so frustrated with the system that they don't seek the uh, the medical assistance that their child needs psychiatric wise, and we end up you know back at uh, point A with that student again. So uh, we now encourage our uh, one of our protocols is to actually help set up an appointment, help set up access, right? Not just give it out there and let them uh, kind of flounder through it because we found obviously. When we're dealing with a child in crisis, we're dealing with a, a house in crisis, right? We're dealing, right. With, a, yeah. we're dealing with a campus in crisis. It is not, it's not linear in that it only impacts that child. It impacts the whole household. When we're, we're laying out that this child had a complete plan and they had the means and they had all these things and you're giving this to a parent, that is overwhelming to anyone to try and digest in a, in a, in a setting and, you know, for a parent, it can be, uh, depending on that parent, it can be really overwhelming for them. And then now we just send them off and say, hey, you need to call, you know, this, these, these individuals or this group of individuals, pick someone to call. Um, it can very easily get um, placed on a back burner. And then bad things can happen when that happens. So, 
Well, it sounds both of you are, this is really, um, I think that you have given good advice as to sort of what to look for in a troubled child. And then also um, sort of you've been very good about describing how parents and uh, caretakers, what behaviors they can exhibit to to help the situation when they've got someone in trouble that they're taking care of. Um, on that subject, do you uh, have anything that either one of you want to add on that? Because you, you're, you've, you've been very eloquent about it. Well, about everything, Dora. What can I say? I want to add, um, cause we did, uh, focus on parents and caretakers, but friends, um, I think friends, uh, most of the time, uh, youth will go to their friends and talk to them about things. Um, so listen to them, um, take seriously if the, uh, you're, you're hearing a friend who's talking about feeling depressed, especially if they mentioned suicide. Um, uh, take seriously if they've done that and suddenly they're not answering text messages from you. They quit talking to you. There's that, that again, that's that isolation. Right. And, and that's not as a, as a friend, uh, I'm, uh, don't hold that all by yourself. You can always go talk to an adult. Um, because that can take a toll on you too. You're constantly worried and trying to support your friend, but please make sure that you take care of you and get help from another adult. Um, because they can help guide you. Um, uh, whether it's a school counselor or maybe your mom uh, to help you with that situation. So you're not trying to navigate it all by yourself. Right. That's all really great advice for both warning signs and what to do when in a crisis. And I want to wrap up today's rich discussion with a hopeful focus. We've already talked about some future trends and treatment methods that are promising and make professionals hopeful, but is there anything we want to add about what is promising for the future? What corrections and remedies look promising? What what makes you hopeful, Lieutenant Snead? Uh, the things that made me hopeful are the friends and family members who have reached out to notify support systems when they have noticed a change in their family member or their friends. Uh, I think at some point that was deemed to be that you were in some way betraying that relationship, but we've actually found that it saves lives in many cases, especially if someone is in a deep, uh, in a deep state um, of an inability and somehow their, their mental capacity is, has been incapacitated or to some diminished to some degree that you can truly save a person's life by just reaching out, whether it's the national suicide hotline, uh, any local authorities, you can call 911. They also here in Travis County, they have uh, mental health professionals that will actually triage uh, services over the phone. Uh, you can, when you call, they'll ask now if you need, uh, fire, police, EMS, or mental health services, which is good. You know, that, 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 that service is there. It may not necessarily be exactly what that person needs, but they may be able to help that person access those services. So I would say that's, that's, that's been a big helpful and encouraging uh, part for me and changes in our community. Right. And that's a new change that adding the, or do you need mental health? That's just been added, I think, in the last year, year and a half. And that's a really great addition to the 911 service. I'm glad you pointed that out. Dr. Eshelman, what about you? What makes you hopeful? What's promising for you in the future? 
I think um, the fact that uh, it's being highlighted, that there's more emphasis and people are looking at it. So I, I think of the medical professional societies like the American Academy of Psychiatry, the American Academy, uh, excuse me, American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association are all putting an emphasis uh, on uh, child mental health issues uh, and how much it's taking a toll, which of course then highlights that we need to expand access, um, that we need to look at ways to decrease barriers to mental health services and recognize how there are some groups who are disadvantaged uh, disproportionately and making sure that they get services. And then podcasts like this, where we reach out to others and talk about this to make them aware and give them information, I think is so invaluable um, for those um, who want more information on uh, about the youth mental health crisis, um, I think is what brings me great hope. Well, thank you. And thank you both for being here today. I just, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. I know how hard it is to carve time out from your schedules. And Helen and I are really grateful that you did so to be with us today. You've enriched our discussion immensely. Thank you. Yeah, I I want to uh, second uh, that sentiment and triple it or something, because um, this has been a remarkable discussion. And you, what I'm sure you know is that you, uh, we don't know how many people you've helped today, but it's, it's many, many people and we are forever in your debt. Um, now as an important reminder, uh, one more time, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. And that's 800-273-8255. And that it's available 24 hours a day. Uh, if you know someone who's, you can also dial 911 or you can go to the closest emergency room. We feel like we want to bring this up because we did talk about suicide and suicidal people. It's great length today. We wanted to give you another sort of uh, aspect, another, another uh, angle to this whole, uh, you know, incident of uh, problems with our youth and their mental health. This is also from the Surgeon General's report. Mental health challenges in children, adolescents, and young adults are real, and they are widespread. But most importantly, they are treatable and often preventable. If we step up for our children and their families in their moment of need and lead with inclusion, kindness, and respect, we can lay the foundation for a healthier, more resilient, and more fulfilled nation. Thank so you. on that note, yes, thank thanks you. For um, thanks for sharing <laughs> that upbeat, wonderful message. Well, and, and again, hearing our two guests today, you you give me hope. Yes. As you absolutely. will, anyone who listened to this today. So on that more optimistic note, which you've contributed to vastly, uh, we're going to move on. And now Valerie will guide us through a much needed mindfulness exercise, as she does every every time we have an episode. That's right. We are at the close of this episode, and the way we will close is how we always close with a mindfulness exercise. What is mindfulness? I always give a definition. Mindfulness is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations without judgment. Mindfulness empowers us to choose our mindset and to shift how we relate to our experience so that we have less stress and more joy in our lives. Today's mindfulness practice is called Set Intentions for the Day. 
Let's begin with our deep breathing, diaphragmatic breaths. Let's settle in and breathe. Close your eyes if you can. Whether your eyes are open or closed, let's steady our breathing with two diaphragmatic breaths. When you do this on your own, take as many breaths as you need to become calm and centered. Let's breathe. Inhale through your nose, expanding your stomach as you inhale. For the count of five, four, three, two, one. Exhale through your mouth, pulling your stomach in as you do. For the count of seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Again, inhale through your nose, expanding your stomach as you inhale. Exhale through your mouth, pulling your stomach in. Loud. It's a forceful breath out. Keep this slow, steady breath going. Let's set our intentions. Ask yourself, what matters most today? What matters most this week? What does my heart long for? Let's set intentions for seeing, being, and doing. Keep your intentions short and simple. What do you want to see more? More beauty? More wonder? Acts of kindness? Good news, humorous moments. What do you want to be more today? Calm, more focused, more open-minded, patient, generous, accepting, gentle, more forgiving. What do you want to do more today? Stop and breathe. Listen deeply to others. Do one thing at a time. Once you have set your intentions, you may choose to write them down or share them with others. Thank you for doing this mindfulness exercise with me. Well, thank you, Valerie. I always have to kind of shake myself and get back into the mode here. Um, uh, We want, again, to thank Dr. Eshelman and Lieutenant Sneed for their invaluable insights and this great generosity that you both have displayed, uh, not just with your time for being here, but with your knowledge and your experience and obviously your great commitment to your work, which is uh, inspiring to see. To our listeners, we send our gratitude for giving us your time and attention. Our examination of the impact of the pandemic will continue in our next episode, The Impact of the Pandemic on Mental Health in America, Part 2, What is Happening to the Grown-Ups? We promise a deep exploration of the plight of adults who are suffering from mental health conditions brought on by the pandemic. So please join us. And now I leave you with our favorite word, 
onward. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify.